Hi, it's Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called How to Use the Power of Your Own Curiosity to Teach Your Brain to Be Successful. Anxiety is normal. If someone or something makes us intimidated, we get clammy hands and a racing heart. It's completely natural and not a bad response, but success can only come when you stop making the decisions to avoid situations where you feel uncomfortable and decide to open up to them instead. And that's where curiosity comes in. According to Todd Cashton, psychology professor and author of Curious, Discover the Missing Ingredient to a Fulfilling Life, you can use curiosity as a way to counter anxiety so you can become the person you are meant to be. And in this audio interview, you'll hear all about it. You'll also learn exactly why people today are at higher risk for anxiety and depression and how to prevent that in yourself. You'll learn the secrets to becoming a happier, more fulfilled person just by being mindfully aware of the people and situations around you. You'll learn why you really need to schedule psychological checkups for yourself in order to be successful in the one easy way to do that. You'll learn sneaky psychological tactics that will help you use curiosity to discover your passion, foundation, and profile in life. You'll learn why it's so important to be disciplined about where your attention goes, especially in this age when we can never really fully turn off technology and ways to do that. When people like Steve Jobs or Steven Spielberg talk about the road they took to success, they usually don't mention classrooms or textbooks. They'll talk about curiosity, discovery, and experiences in their life. We're allowed to challenge our brains and our beliefs along the way because success starts from within. And in this audio interview, you'll hear the proven strategies that work to help you use your own curiosity as a stepping stone to that success. Now let's get going. Hi, this is Chris Costello, and I've teamed up with Michael Senoff to bring you the world's best health-related interviews. So if you know anyone struggling with their weight, with cancer, diabetes, ADHD, autism, heart disease, or other health issues, send them over to Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. So, Todd, great to have you with us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. What is going on in our society there's no one answer, but we're definitely seeing a trend, what's called cohort trend, which is you're seeing an increase in the rate of the number of people with anxiety problems and depression from each generation to the next. And so it gives us an idea to think about is what's changed over the course of time. And there's a few things that are pretty obvious. One is, you know, we have these hardwired old brains that were designed for us to live in the Sahara Desert and just have a few people that we have to associate with in our caves to stick with the group because we can't attack a woolly mammoth or a saber-toothed tiger by ourselves. And now there's such a high density of people in such small spaces that we're having to read so many cues of so many people. And our brains are so attuned to being accepted and belonging into a group and not being rejected that we've got far too much stimuli that's coming at us. And so it's very easy to imagine that our brains are sort of whirling around too quickly and it's easy to get anxious start worrying about the future and really ruminating about all the things that we do and we might have done wrong. For the first 10 or 15 years that email became popular, there was this idea that this will make people less socially skilled, they'll be less adept at having intimate relationships, and we're going to see an increase in divorce rates and parentless children. And the more recent research is showing that it actually has the exact opposite effect, is a lot of these mediums are actually enhancing people's social skills and improving their intimacy as opposed to getting in the way of improving social skills. The one problem 
problem that does make people more anxious, and this is pretty clear, is because we're always wired in with our iPhones and our cell phones is that we're never really off task. And so the real lack of balance between the boundaries between work and play and family and all these different areas of our life we care about, everything bleeds into each other, and that's too much information for us to hold on to. What's important is that we believe that there are people that are going to care about us if we have something positive that happens in our lives. So you publish a book, you have a baby, you get a pay raise, you have an amazing piece of chocolate or truffle you've never tried before. The fact that someone's actually going to listen and care about that story and that someone will be there for you during those difficult spells when you're not funny, you're not entertaining, and you really don't feel comfortable in your own skin. The important is not how many people you have or the proximity. It's the belief that you have those people there that would support you and would listen to your stories. Twitter might be one of the worst in terms of creating a feeling of belonging, and that's because the sheer number of people that ignore anything important you have to say is unlike any other medium that we've seen in technology. I was hitting sort of one dimension, which is the idea of kind of feeling like you're connected to other people. But if you want to satisfy your desire for novelty, you know, to really to gossip and be a peeping Tom and get into people's worlds, your greatest resource that you have at your disposal is your time and energy. And the problem is that most people don't spend it that wisely because they don't realize that it's so limited. In terms of whatever we attend to becomes our personality, becomes the meaning in our lives. And most of us don't think of it as a currency that we use. And so when you collect thousands of people that you follow on Twitter or thousands of people that you email, as opposed to focusing what you just described of, I'm interested in sort of what Larry King is doing right now, it's very laser-focused attention. That's a really wise use of your currency that you have. I really see a lot of people now spending a lot of time on the computer and not really connecting in their communities. And I'm just wondering, you know, is that partly why we're feeling this isolation, this anxiety that a lot of people are struggling with? I'm not sure I would blame it on curiosity for people's anime and loneliness, but you bring up a really good point, which is you have to be as disciplined with your attention as you would in terms of dieting or trying to add muscle to your body. This is something you have to practice on on a regular basis. The idea of being open and curious, taking off our blinders and our expectations and our worries and looking at things that really are in the present, this is an effortful endeavor, but the more we practice, the more we become used to using this mindset and we start to realize how much beauty and intrigue is around us. But when you bring up a good point, though, which is most moments of being curious add nothing to our well-being. For me, I used to be a massive fan of Kurt Vonnegut, so I'd love for finding little nuggets of information about him. And it would not add an iota to my well-being. It was a nice, positive splurge, you know, just like having a chocolate bar, you know, on my commute home from work. And if I find a UPS package sitting by my doorstep when I come home, of course I'm curious what's in there until I get closer and realize it's the Amazon books that I purchased last week. And so it disappears immediately, adds nothing to my well-being. So it's really about discovering... What are your passions, your interests, your values? And that's where you invest your attention in. That's where you're going to get the reservoir of pleasure and meaning that's going to have that stickiness to it. And now, in your book, Curious, you've written basically that being curious is a book about living a life that matters. Now, why is being curious a central ingredient in a fulfilling life? Well, one thing is we have to explore and discover things and learn about ourselves you know, I was just mentioning sort of what we're passionate about, what our values are. If you were to ask someone just yes or no, do you know what you value? People most often will say yes. When you ask for details, you find that people really don't have an inkling of what's the foundation.
education, everything was taken away from them and they had to rebuild from start. You, know, you think of the survivor games. You know, what would be the foundation that you make your decisions of what you devote yourself to? Is your community important to you? Is your family important to you? Is achievement important to you? Is leaving a lasting significant contribution to the world after you die, is that important to you? Discovering the truths of the universe, trying to get your hand on some of the mysteries there. These are a lot of different values. We can't invest in all of them equally. We all have our different profile. So discovering these things, discovering what our strengths are, how to use them, how can I figure out ways to apply them into my everyday life? You know, just to give a personal example is, you know, one of my personal strengths happens to be authenticity. I'm very playful. I use profanity all the time. I use sex and drug analogies all the time in the classroom. And I realized is that I'm not going to try and be whatever a so-called professor is supposed to sound like. My objective, my value is to teach the children that I work with how to be flexible, creative, innovative thinkers. That usually means disagreeing with what I have to say and challenging me on a regular basis. There's a lot of tension that comes there. But I realized is that that's me, is that I like that playfulness. I like the sort of these violent arguments we have in the classroom, and I have no problems when hot-button issues are raised. But if the dean or the president of George Mason University was to sit in my classroom and hear me cursing in the classroom, I'd probably lose tenure. But oh. you know what? I have a feeling that those kids learn a lot more because there are no really clear boundaries of what you should do, but what's the best way of helping you learn? I try and teach them from the get-go. Just because I'm a so-called expert doesn't mean I know anything. You should be questioning it. Punk rock ethos. You know, question authority, question your parents, question everything. And the, one of the things about this book was, you know, I spent 10 years studying this topic, was I wanted to make sure it was every suggestion was backed by scientific research as opposed to my own personal opinions or, you know, another book by a motivational guru, motivational speaker, and, you know, some spiritual leader. What I find is I'm not against Tibetan monks. Actually, I'm a big fan of them. But I'm always amazed when the Dalai Lama is on Larry King or some other show and someone calls in to ask them for relationship advice on their love life. And I think to myself, these are people that are celibate, that have decided to master consciousness so they don't have to worry about sex and picking up people in bars and figuring out all the conflicts of fighting of, you know, who should we cuddle afterwards or not. And how, from their point of view and their limited observation, why would you trust them over your neighbor? You have to have some experiences, though. Of, you know, part of his trial and error is one way of learning, and this is an important process of discovering of what are the things that I care about. You know, what I mentioned in that blog is when you bring two groups that have different values. Well, you look at Obama. Obama's a great example right now. I'm a libertarian, so I can speak the politics comfortably and no one has to yell at me. Is When he shook Chavez's hands or he's talking to the president of Iran, 50% of the U.S., goes irate and they get really upset of how could you do that without them telling you in advance that they're going to agree to five to seven principles in stone ahead of time. And what the research shows is his best approach, if the goal is to get the best negotiation for both parties, the best possible outcome, what he's doing is instead of judging them ahead of time, and this is hard to do with some of these people, is he's being open and receptive and all he's doing is collecting information. He's not judging. He's collecting information, doing some research ahead of time. There's probably some 15-year-old interns doing the research about what their values are, what their beliefs are, and then asking them about, you know, why is it that you hold this belief? Why is it that you feel this way? And from there, when you ask the clarifying question without any judgment about that, just to get information, what happens is, is that the other party views you as more warm, more open, and they're more willing to negotiate with you. And this research has been done with people that are pro-abortion and anti-abortion and staunch conservative
conservatives and staunch liberals, and they've done this in the laboratory, and they've done this out in the streets. And they find that just asking one single question without judgment, because when you ask questions, it doesn't mean that I'm automatically going to agree with whatever you say. All I'm doing is collecting information. You're listening to an interview on Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. So in your book, Curious, you also talk about the anxious mind and the curious spirit. What is that? What it comes down to, we're hardwired to be curious, we're hardwired to be anxious. Our brains don't really care if we have a meaningful, happy existence. All they care about is that we survive and that we have sleep with as many people as possible to pass on our genes. And what we do with, with a lot of our lives is we're modifying the neurons and the synaptic connections in our brain so it can work with us towards things that we care about that don't have to do with just survival and passing on genes. So anxiety is completely normal. This is just a completely normal reaction to threats, challenging situations, and we're being put in scenarios that are just manageable, just outside of the skills that we have and the knowledge that we have. So the conflict that we face on a regular basis is I walk out of my workplace right now, see my twin two-year-olds, and they're both playing with a bunch of insects. Right now, they're in this massive phase of dropping them in their shirts because they like the tickling sensation. <laughs> and I'm always worried with where those insects have been and what bacteria is on them. And so I sort of have this mixed reaction. You know, part of me is a little bit anxious and like, you know, maybe they shouldn't be just shoving them in every orifice that they have. And then part of me is a little bit intrigued by their intrigue of, you know, look, at they're just kind of getting the texture and the feel and they're learning to discriminate, you know, the difference between a caterpillar and a ladybug and a cicada. So this is the conflict we face is do I go out and take out all these insects and get them off them as quick as possible? Or do I allow them to kind of enjoy this sort of experiencing process where they're actually learning a great deal very quickly? And this happens all the time when we meet people. You know, someone intimidates us. Do we avoid or do we act on our intrigue and try and learn a little bit about them? How we decide to act on those decisions, do we approach or do we avoid, determines whether we have an opportunity to grow or learn or whether we withdraw into our shell. So anxiety and curiosity are the seesaw that really determines, you know, most of our existence. But how do they transform that to curiosity? Well, there's a lot of techniques. I mean, nothing works better than exposure in terms of graduated exposure in terms of dealing with anxiety. And this is an ancient Chinese koan of going to the heart of the fire there and only there you'll find safety. We have to sort of expose ourselves to experiences because they're in territory that we care about. So the anomaly is the person that loves giving public presentations to 500 people. Most of us have a little bit of anxiety, public speaking anxiety. The reason that we potentially do it is because our job depends on it, or this can be really be a nice way for me to launch some ideas that I care about, and this is my creative product here that I'm sort of advertising for it. And so we discover what our passions are, and then with or without this anxiety, the anxiety comes because we care so much about what we're doing. And so just by actually acting on what we care about, over time, our brain starts to change. The neural wiring starts to change. We start to realize that it's not so bad when our heart starts to race. It's not so bad when our hands are a little bit clammy. And that we think people notice and focus all of their attention on our anxiety. We think that other people see what we're saying to ourselves in our head. So we're saying to ourselves, oh, my God, there's sweat beating on my forehead and my legs are shaking and my hands sort of, I can't, you know, they're not sticking to my side. I'm holding on to my glass so tightly. We think that other people see what we're telling to ourselves. And the fact is, is that they may see a little bit, but not close to what it is when we're talking to ourselves. So it's about exposing people to these scenarios and starting to develop some openness to the naturalness of being anxious. When I was living in New York City, when I worked with people that 
had social anxiety difficulties because I'm also a clinical psychologist. And one of the things that I would do is we would go on the subway and I would say, what I want you to do is every time before the next stop comes, I want you to yell what the next stop is going to be. And this would be a busy subway. You know, if you're from New York City or any of the listeners are, they know what I'm talking about is it's a pretty embarrassing thing to do. And I asked them what they think is going to happen. They say, oh, people are going to throw things at me. I'm going to be mugged. They're going to hate me. And I just sit way into the background. And I do it first to show them that you can do this. And so what happens? The first two or three stops, everybody looks at them. What are they doing? What's happening here? Are they going to ask for money? And by the fourth stop, what happens is people start asking them, do you know what the next stop is? All of a sudden, they become a source of information. Just like you said, people become not only compassionate, they actually appreciate the information. And it's just a lesson of this spotlight effect. We think the spotlight is always on us, but what we forget is our brain is talking to ourselves. The thoughts that we have of, I have nothing to say, I'm not that funny, things are hopeless. We forget that my brain is having that thought. That doesn't mean that thought is actually a true representation of what my life actually is. We're allowed to challenge our brain just as if we're allowed to challenge anybody that we talk to. I will be perfectly honest in telling you that I am not that knowledgeable about dietary issues. I do know that a lot of dietary treatments for psychological difficulties end up showing no effectiveness when you look at the actual research. There's actually just not that much research that's published in peer-reviewed journals that are actually have the quality control to show that some of these methods work. The question I always ask is, what's the evidence? And if it's just that you've seen a couple of clients where you've seen effectiveness, that's enough for me because I've seen every single possible combination of things happen with one person in my life. The one thing to be very wary of, at least this is a mantra for me and I think for everyone, is be wary of small numbers. And that's that everybody has a story of something worked for somebody. And the other thing is there's the placebo effect. So ADHD is this either it's an epidemic or it's a social nightmare of the idea that so many children are being diagnosed. It's a little bit of both. And so people are trying all sorts of treatments and, you know, leafy diets and focusing on omega-3 acids. And these nutrition-based treatments have no effectiveness whatsoever. But there's a placebo effect. Parents want their children to be better so with such vigor. And their motivations are pure that they will start to see things, the tiny changes that are actually just that no child with any mental disorder doesn't have moments where they're actually in good spirits, have positive things, are effective, productive, and creative. And so when any treatment goes into orbit, people start to focus on those moments. And this is kind of, you know, what the placebo effect is all about. Randomized controlled trials where, you know, you have half of the children and adults that are on these leafy diets or nutritional supplements, and then half of them have placebos, which are pills that are inactive. You might as well be sucking on some nerd's candy. And the doctors don't know who's in which condition, and the clients don't know who's in which condition. So you have this nice randomized clinical trials, and you find that the active treatment taking the nutritional supplements or the leafy vegetables has no more effect than a sugar pill. You also talk about the strength of curiosity. And what do you mean, Todd, by the strength of curiosity? A strength can be defined as it's a capacity that leads to the fulfillment that we care about in life. When we look at well-being as more than just happiness, I look at it as a series of dimensions. There's happiness, there's wisdom, there's emotional maturity, there's feeling competent, there's achievement, there's feeling autonomous as I'm the author of my own life, I'm not being controlled by other people. Being spiritual, feeling at home in the universe, that's my definition of spirituality. A sense of loving compassion for other people, compassion for yourself. When you look at all these different dimensions, 
find of which strengths are the most consistently and strongly related to all of them. None of them. Generosity, forgiveness, being a good moral person, being a religious person, emotional intelligence, courage, hope. None of them are more strongly related to those dimensions of well-being than curiosity and gratitude. Well, I think one of the reasons why you see these effects is because not that curiosity is the only ingredient to a filling life, but it energizes other things. So, for example, take gratitude. This is a profound impact on well-being. People feeling good about themselves and strengthening relationships, being mindfully aware that other people are providing benefits that are helping me with my own life. But to get there, you have to actually be openly exploring of, first of all, what benefits have I received in my life? and what ones aren't due to me and my own actions. That's a whole process of being curious and exploring right there. You know, it's part of the process of being grateful, is exploring of who are my benefactors, who's been there for me. And this is one of the exercises that I give to my students every year. I've been teaching for 10 years this class on the dream class, the science of well-being. And I had them go out and find someone in their lives that they never properly thanked in their early childhood and adolescence and then write a letter and then read it to them. For many of them, it ends up being this really profound experience of here's someone, they wouldn't have been where they are in life now if it wasn't for this person. And they never thank them because usually, as any parent knows, their children don't really appreciate them until they get married and all of a sudden they recognize everything they sacrificed for them. But wouldn't it be wonderful if they had these little moments where almost like you have a bar mitzvah in the Jewish faith where you have to show your gratitude to your parents and you have this proclamation, this ceremonial thing. The idea that we can implement these things in our daily lives. We can have psychological annual checkups just like we have physical checkups. There are ways of enhancing our well-being and part of it process is really being profoundly aware of what's going on in your world, past, present, future, and then really probing. And that's how you get all the juices and benefits from them. For more interviews on health, mind, body, and spirit, go to michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com. You know, how do people slow down enough to do that? We just go at such a fast pace. Well, you know, the beauty of a lot of the things that I talk about is that they're really simple, is that we make time for doctor's appointments. You know, when we have a dental appointment, we make it. When we have a work meeting, we make it. When I have to pick up my kids from daycare, I'm there. And, you know, when I have to go to the bathroom, I just make sure that I go to the bathroom. We have to schedule in, just like anything else, time to focus on our psychological well-being. We don't do this. We don't put this into our schedule. In my Gmail calendar, I have specific times, deliberate practices of being mindful built into there to remind me. You know, I've got it on my iPhone as well. I'd love for someone to make an iPhone application about that word. You know, we just have to actually just regular, deliberate practice of training ourselves to be attentive. You know, the thing is that feeling curious is not what leads to a happy, meaningful life. It's when you act on it. It's the act of, I'm going to explore, I'm going to discover, I'm going to grow, and I know that I'm not done evolving. And there's some really interesting work, which is that when people believe that intelligence is a fixed thing, so, you know, we've got this genetic baggage, I'm 18 years old, I'm 30 years old, I'm done. You know, I've got this analytic intelligence, and either I can go to Brown University or a community college, or I don't have what it takes, you know, to really educate myself. If you believe that, it ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you believe, which is the truth, that our personality and our intelligence is a moving target, it's still evolving. When we seek out new things and new challenges, new nerve cells are growing in our brain, new connections are being made as our brain is trying to understand and make patterns. Our intelligence is always changing. If you believe that, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so it's really important to know that the brain science is now showing that our personality can still change into our 60s, 70s, and 
important is because we're going to be living a lot longer, a lot longer than our parents and grandparents. But who cares if we're living longer if we're sitting there, you know, stuck as the curmudgeon neighbor who stole your kickball when it went over their fence and was racist and sexist and stuck in their ways. And you have a 25-year-old home health aide that has to clean you on a daily basis. I don't want to just live longer. I want to live like a healthy, satisfying life during my older years. I had this moment last spring where I saw this couple. They were at a pond, and they were reading the paper next to each other. I was telling it to my class, and I changed my impression. I thought it was so beautiful that they can be content enjoying this experience without having to say anything together. And then who knows what they were talking about afterwards once they both got a different perspective of reading the paper. I don't know because I didn't get the ending to the story. And all of a sudden, I became a lot more appreciative. First, I was really judgmental and saying, I don't want to be that way. And then I changed my mind saying, you know what? I think I do want to be that way as I get older. Imagine our school system. That's how we've taught our children. And we were trained to learn information. Instead of taking history classes where you're supposed to memorize facts and for these standardized achievement tests, which has been this no child left behind thing has been, you know, the biggest nightmare of it. I don't want to get into the issues too much is the standardized testing because we don't want children to learn facts. They'll always have books on their bookshelves. We want them to be flexible, creative, innovative thinkers. So instead of teaching kids, you know, about the Manhattan Project and Robert Oppenheimer was involved in creating the atomic bomb, the better question is from whose perspective would it be a good thing, the Manhattan Project, and from whose perspective would it be a bad thing? And have them get into groups and to think about this. There is no answer. It's just that to remember that things change depending on the perspective and the context that you're looking at. And you think about music is all music sounds the same until it's not the same. And all of a sudden the band comes out like Nirvana and creates this grungy sound with this distortion in the background and then everybody sounds like Nirvana. And, you know, this happens over and over and over again when the Beatles came out and when the Who came out. And to be reminded that context and perspective, things always change. I'm very appreciative when people like Steven Spielberg and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, they talk about how they got to where they were because they provide lessons of it wasn't in the classroom. It was in the garage. It was playing stickball. It was digging huge holes in their backyard to seeing how many species of, you know, of insects and animals live in there and who's going to go into that hole at nighttime, you know, versus the daytime of what they're going to find in there. I mean, these are the stories. These are not the stories of, you know, them reading textbooks about physics and computer science. And we forget that unfettered play, without that unstructured play where children have to make the rules themselves and discover how to develop leadership roles and how to be compassionate to people that are doing a little bit worse and doing a little bit better and how to bring everyone up. You can't teach that with structure. You have to let them sort of experiment through trial and error, and they're going to make a lot of mistakes, and that's when there's a nice opportunity just to give a little bit of correctives. I'm not there yet because my kids are only two. But I really bemoan the idea of shoveling my kids from one structured ballet to the ultimate fighting challenge to wrestling to football to lacrosse. I want them to just go into the street and go make up some games with their kids and then tell me what it is they invented when they come home. It's disappointing was that in 2009, no one had written a book on curiosity. You know, the thing is that we all think we know everything about this because we know what it's like when something new happens. We know what it's like to have a movie trailer come on before we see our movie, and then, oh, my God, I've got to see that when that comes out this summer. I mean, we know what it feels like, but what we forget is we don't have to passively wait for something to fall into our lap that's interesting. We can wield this, and we can reclaim this as a strength that we can use at any time we want to and modify things and 
change our mindset and come home from work and look at our romantic partner and our children or our roommates and say, I'm going to look for something that's different about them. And that tiny bit of change in what I'm focusing on changes the dynamics of the relationship. I'm not looking for the same patterns. I'm not looking to not tell them a story that happened at work because I already know in advance in my head that they're not going to be interested. Test it out. Explore things. and You know, look at things from different perspectives. And most of the time we have our eyes off the prize. We focus in schools on intelligence. We focus in college on getting high-salaried, secure jobs. And in relationships, we're looking for security. And these are all good things. But if the goal is fulfillment and growing as a person and meaning in life, these things don't really add that much. All they do is provide an early foundation. That's it. So, Todd, can you give people your website address? I know a lot of people that are listening today would love to find out more about you and what you're doing. You've got a great blog, and you are very inspirational as far as getting people to think about you know, reducing anxiety and up-leveling the curiosity. It's my name, toddkajdan.com. So if you can't remember, you can just Google my last name. So it's Kajdan, K-A-S-H-D-A-N, and my first name, Todd, T-O-D-D. So just toddkajdan.com. That's the end of our interview, and I hope you've enjoyed it. For more great health-related interviews, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. That's the end of our interview with Todd Cashton. I hope you found this helpful. And for more awesome interviews on health, wellness, and nutrition, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com.